Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. We would like to thank Allied Magazine for sponsoring this podcast episode. Allied Magazine combines allied health and wellness with a fresh outlook on people who are shaping and shaking up the industry across business, allied health, fitness, and wellness. Whether you are looking for a boost of creativity, professional advice from industry experts, the most exciting new products and technology, Allied Magazine is the only magazine allied health professionals need. And when you sign up to the Derm Health Co. directory as a practitioner, you can receive a complimentary subscription to one month of the digital copy of Allied Magazine. To find out more, go to dermhealth.co or visit alliedmagazine.com. Have you heard of vitiligo? Vitiligo is a skin disorder in which areas of the skin lose its pigment cells and therefore turn white. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I am speaking with Dr. Adrian Ma, board certified dermatologist with a special interest in vitiligo. Vitiligo causes the skin to lose its color and usually begins with a small few white patches or macules on the skin which may gradually spread to large areas sometimes affecting the whole body and in later stages it also affects the hair follicles and the hair follicle or the hair rather will also turn white or lose its color as well. Vitiligo affects approximately 1% of the population. So Dr. Adrian Ma is going to speak to us all about vitiligo today. I know you're going to love this conversation. I certainly did. He is the head of the Department of Dermatology at Monash Health, an adjunct associate professor at Monash University, and has consulting rooms in Northwestern Dermatology in Victoria. So he has a special interest in vitiligo, and as such, he is the president of the Vitiligo Association of Australia. Dr. Ma shares how his journey into dermatology led to his special interest in to vitiligo, the most common treatment options, and inspiring stories from his extensive ter- career. I started by asking Dr. Ma what he thinks is the biggest misconception about vitiligo. So vitiligo is a condition that most people probably have seen, I suspect, without necessarily knowing that it is called vitiligo. And I think people, when they first see others with this condition, may feel that it represents an underlying condition, a health or medical condition. There may well be misconceptions about whether or not it could be something contagious, which is interesting because in some countries where vitiligo has a disproportionate impact 
particularly in countries like the subcontinent, there is an infectious condition that also presents with pale patches, and that is leprosy. So I think for most people, it is simply just not knowing what it is, why it is that people have this clear disfigurement of their skin. And I think it leads to some intrigue, but also I think a natural, well, repulsion is a very strong word, but I think we all have a natural reaction when we see people with some disfigurement of their skin. Somehow it does push us away a little bit, and that's something that is natural, but we hope will be overcome over time as education improves about this condition. Mm. And I know certainly you're involved with, I guess, disabling this stigma about vitiligo, which we will discuss a little bit later into the episode. But tell us about your career and journey into dermatology. So to become a dermatologist in Australia, doctors have to firstly graduate, work in the hospitals for a few years before having a chance to enter the training program. And training as a specialist in Australia is modelled after the English system, which is essentially an apprenticeship. And so young doctors, if they're interested in the specialty, can apply for what is a very competitive and fairly limited number of training places to become a dermatologist. If accepted into the training program, it's a four-year course with a very rigorous exam at the end. But like an apprenticeship, these doctors working in the hospital, treating patients under the direct supervision of senior specialist consultants. And once they qualify, they gain fellowship to the Australasian College of Dermatologists. So I went through that path here in Melbourne and subsequent to that um, worked and still do work as a dermatologist out at uh, Monash Health. And I have a private practice here in Melbourne. And several years ago, some colleagues and I set up our first clinic at the Skin and Cancer Foundation, which is a private institution established and run by dermatologists. We set up a vitiligo clinic for other dermatologists to refer patients in to gain our specialist expertise in. So this clinic is a so-called tertiary referral center. So that means it is only dermatologists who can refer in. There are similar clinics. There's a similar one up in Sydney, their institution, which also used to be called the Skin and Cancer Foundation. They call it now the Skin Hospital in Melbourne. Our Skin and Cancer Foundation will soon change its name to Skin Health Institute. And there are other dermatology colleagues across Australia who have a particular subspecialty interest in this condition. Mm, how fascinating. So even after all those years of study, dermatologists <laughs> will a focus on a special interest. And by the sounds of what you were describing, not all dermatologists specialize or have a special interest in vitiligo. So do you remember the exact moment when you developed a special interest in vitiligo? What did that kind of journey or pathway look like for you? So I think as you're suggesting, medicine is becoming very subspecialized. And so general practitioners can treat vitiligo general dermatologists, and I do consider myself a general dermatologist, do treat vitiligo. And then within the specialty, some have a particular subspecialty interest. So my interest developed 
because I could see that it was a condition in Australia that is becoming more noticeable. And when I say that, we feel that the prevalence of vitiligo in the community, which may be 1%, maybe a bit less than 1%, is actually similar amongst people of all skin type, uh, which is to say different skin colours. However, because of Australia's changing migration pattern, in the past, people with vitiligo, of course, would be of uh, English Celtic stock and the condition less noticeable. But now that we're seeing more people from parts of the world where the skin is of darker colour, it's becoming more noticeable literally and therefore it is a condition that is presenting more to dermatologists from people who do have that more noticeable disfigurement. So myself, I'm of Chinese background and I uh, noticed that a lot of patients with darker skin, not just with darker skin, but in particular, have their concerns which relate to their skin type. And it is interesting that in Australia, we do see a lot of skin cancer, for example, but if you have a darker skin type, that's not really the problem uh, that you're faced with. It, it is much more the case that you may have problems with skin color, either the skin getting too dark in areas or in the case of vitiligo, too light. So there was a bit of a, a personal interest there. And also I felt a need to develop some subspecialty expertise here in Australia. And I'm glad to see that my colleagues and I having developed this clinic and had support from the college and other dermatologists in general, recognizing that I think there is a need to have some local expertise. Mm, that's so wonderful. And are you able to tell us, Dr. Mark, a little bit more about the condition for those that may not really know what vitiligo is, but also, I guess, perhaps the etiology and a little bit more about the condition itself? So vitiligo is a so-called autoimmune disease. And that is to say that the immune system, which is very, very complex, of course, should be there fighting off infection in particular. And we don't know why it is that a very small part of the immune system has, in this case, decided instead to attack the pigment cells in the skin and also the hair follicles in some cases. So the important thing is that it does not reflect anything wrong with the rest of the immune system in that people with vitiligo otherwise perfectly well and healthy. It certainly doesn't indicate anything wrong with anything internal in terms of kidney, liver, blood disease. So we do, however, see vitiligo in people who might be prone uh, to getting other autoimmune conditions, in particular thyroid disease which can result in either an over or underactive thyroid. And sometimes we do see this tendency running in families as well. So vitiligo can present at any age. So in children, in young adults, and occasionally in, in the elderly. And people, of course, develop these white patches. And if left untreated, it's very difficult to know how extensive it might be. And that's one thing that we can't really assess in terms of doing a blood test or any other test, at what point the, that part of the immune system is overactive, you could say, in attacking the pigment cells, and at what point that immune reaction will itself settle down. And so some people may, if left untreated, just develop a few patches, 
and that's all. Other people, which is less common, will progress and develop further white patches and potentially all of the skin color could be lost. So one of the challenges is being able to predict what will happen. And I know we'll touch on treatment and that, of course, is a big challenge as well for us. So we know that there are genetic reasons. Stress certainly is a factor in many, if not most, cases. And I think as we all realize, stress is not the root cause, but does manifest differently in all of us, depending on our genetic makeup. And as dermatologists, we certainly see people with all manner of skin conditions that are exacerbated by stress. So acne, eczema, alopecia areata, And in the case of vitiligo, we certainly do see that. So emotional stress uh, can be a trigger. Interestingly, physical stress as well, and by that what I mean is that if the skin is rubbed or if people happen to fall down and they abrade the skin, if they damage the skin in any way and at that point in time their immune system is active, those immune cells will tend to come into that area of damaged skin and bring out the vitiligo. And so we do suggest that people don't, for example, wear tight clothing, make sure the belts are not too tight, make sure the shoes are not too tight, and to protect the skin generally because sometimes excessive rubbing or damage to the skin could bring out vitiligo in those areas. I see. So in some parts, a bit misunderstood, but also we know that some of the main factors, stress and other common you know, trauma of the skin. In terms of treatments, so I know there are variable treatments depending, I guess, on probably the prevalence of the vitiligo and perhaps the age or time constraints um, of the actual patient. Are you able to go through some of the most common treatments and perhaps include the risks of these treatments and the cess rates that you have seen in these treatments as well? So firstly, I think before we talk about the treatment of the skin itself, it's very important to bear in mind the psychological impact of this condition. Mm, Absolutely. And vitiligo, really, when we think about it, is just a color change of the skin. And I I use just, of course, in various cautious terms, because on the one hand, if it wasn't for the appearance, we would actually ignore it because people with vitiligo, as I mentioned, do not have any other associated medical illness. But yet the impact of a change in the skin color can be enormous on a person's psychological well-being. And quality of life studies have verified that in young people, for example, the impact on their health can be as great as something like kidney disease, which is, of course, potentially very serious medically, but it is hidden. And vitiligo, on the other hand, can affect a person's self-esteem and lead to depression and anxiety. And that is something never to be underestimated. So recognizing that and thinking about how that can be supported is one key aspect of managing the condition. When we talk about the specific treatments of trying to stop the progression of white patches arising and hopefully bringing the color back, the treatments are somewhat limited and they have a varying degree of effectiveness. So the first thing is it depends where the vitiligo occurs on the skin as to how likely we are to be able to bring the color back. So the best places, in fact, to develop vitiligo in terms of recovery, it is actually on the face. And the hardest parts to bring the color back are on the hands, 
uh, the lips and on the genitals. And the reason for that is related to the hair follicles. So the immune system, usually when vitiligo occurs, attacks and gets rid of the pigment cells in the skin while leaving the pigment cells alone in the, the hair root. And when we have a look at the skin, and if the skin is white with dark hairs in it, that has a better outlook than if the vitiligo process had already got rid of the pigmentation from the hair as well. And when we do see vitiligo recovering, whether it's on its own, which occasionally occurs, although not as often as we'd like, or with treatment, what we do see little areas of pigmentation occurring around those hair follicles, little dots of normal skin color that then slowly enlarge and gather in number. Uh, as well as some limited repigmentation from the edges of the vitiligo. And those round dots represent the pigment cells literally crawling up to the surface of the skin and then recoloring it. And it happens that we have the most hair follicles per square centimeter on the face, including areas like the nose. So we don't always realize, but we do have a lot of small hairs on the nose. Uh, the hair follicles, uh, the pore is the same as the oil gland pore. And so on the nose, the oil gland part is larger than the hair part, but nonetheless, there are small hairs there. We don't, even in, say, men who have quite a lot of body hair, have any hair follicles around the nails. We don't have any hair follicles over the finger joints and the knuckle joints and a part of the top of the hands and corresponding areas on the feet, and likewise on parts of the genitals and lips. And so if vitiligo occurs in those areas, then it is very unlikely because there is no reservoir of pigment cells in the hair follicles that the color will come back. So the area of involvement is important to consider in terms of the likelihood of repigmentation. The first treatment we always start with is creams. And here we're talking about creams that are stopping the immune system attacking the skin. So we use cortisone creams in most parts of the body, which are the same creams that we might use in eczema and other inflammatory conditions. We tend to use non-cortisone creams on the face just simply because cortisone can, if used for a long period on the face, cause pimples and uh, acne. And we do have to be mindful that cortisone creams, if used over extended periods, may thin the skin. But the main problem with cortisone creams in the treatment of vitiligo is not that they can cause side effects. The main problem is that they're usually not very effective. And when we use a cream, we might apply it to the skin, say, for two or three months at a time. And the main purpose of the cream is to stop that patch of vitiligo getting worse. And therefore, it's very important that we detect any new spots early, apply the cream straight away to stop it enlarging. The creams can, particularly on the face, have on their own some benefit in bringing the color back. But unless people realize that the creams really just limited in their effectiveness, there's often a feeling that they don't do much at all. But they do have an important role, as I said, in stopping the vitiligo getting worse. The next treatment that we'd always consider, because it is the most effective way in bringing the color back, is what we'd call phototherapy. So phototherapy can be natural sunlight. But in dermatology clinics, we have a form of ultraviolet, UVB, which we use to treat various skin conditions, particularly psoriasis. And the reason we use it is because like natural sunlight, it does have an effect in dampening that immune reaction in the skin to stop the immune cells attacking the pigment cells. 
But importantly, the UVB also stimulates the dormant pigment cells to recolor the skin. So the UVB is a safe treatment, and it seems crazy that we normally as dermatologists tell people to stay out of the sun because of the concerns about skin cancer. But here we're actually using it as a treatment. And people with vitiligo have no risk of getting melanoma on the white patches because melanoma is a cancer of the pigment cells, which have actually disappeared. And when you think about it, in people for whom vitiligo is particularly troublesome, their normal skin is quite dark and therefore relatively protected from sun damage. But the interesting thing is that uh, research has now confirmed that if you take two people with the same skin colour and expose them to the same amount of sun, the person who has a genetic tendency to get vitiligo in fact, has a lower than expected risk of developing skin cancer, particularly melanoma, even on their normal pigmented skin. And we think this is one potential upside, if you like, of having an immune system that's designed and overactive to get rid of pigment cells in that it does seem as though it also can more easily get rid of cancerous pigment cells, which would be melanoma cells. So having phototherapy uh, as a treatment is relatively safe. It still does need to be under dermatologist supervision. And this is important because when we embark on a treatment course of UV therapy, we have to tell people that the treatment may be for more than a year, sometimes even a few years. And this is attending the UV cabinet treatment two or three times a week. So it's a very, very large commitment and it can have a very wearing effect on the individual having to fit that into their schedule, even though the treatment itself may only be a few minutes at a time. It's finding time at the end or beginning of the day, coming in two to three times a week, driving to the dermatology clinic, having the treatment, and not really seeing so much difference day to day. And we rely on photography every three months to be able to compare and to see whether there is some improvement. The other problem with phototherapy is that it does make the normal skin tan. And so while we're using it to bring the color back in the white areas, it actually makes the vitiligo look worse. And that's because we get a, a greater contrast between the white skin and the tan surrounding skin. So it does require a big commitment on the part of the person undergoing the treatment. And also it does require from the dermatologist a way of being able to document that repigmentation to encourage the person that things are improving. So in terms of the likelihood of recoloring, it does depend on the site of involvement, as I mentioned. And it also does depend on how early we treat. The earlier, the better. In other words, if people have had vitiligo untreated for, say, a few or several years, there's less likelihood of the color coming back as opposed to treating uh, within a few months or, let's say, six months of the onset. We also know that young people do tend to have a better prognosis. In other words, their skin color does tend to return more likely and more completely compared with adults. When I see somebody with vitiligo that's extensive on the hands or the genitals, I have to tell them from the very outset that the current treatments we have do not unfortunately have the ability to bring the color back in those areas. Whereas if I see somebody with vitiligo on their face, including around the eyes, um, uh, or on the body, which has an intermediate success rate compared with the face, between the face and the hands. 
I do suggest to them that it is likely that most and hopefully all of the pigment could be recovered. But again, it does depend on how long the vitiligo has been there to a certain area of the extent. And so if the vitiligo is very extensive, then it is just harder to bring the color back. I've already mentioned if there's white hairs, then the outlook is uh, much lower for successful treatment. Beyond that, we have, in limited cases, tablets that dampen the immune system down. Now, these are used a lot in other inflammatory conditions. I've already mentioned psoriasis, eczema as well. It's just that they don't really work very well in vitiligo. And their main place is for vitiligo that is very active. So in other words, people who are starting to develop white patches appearing very rapidly over a period of weeks. And we use the tablets over a short period, maybe a few months, just to stop the immune system in its tracks and stabilize the vitiligo so it doesn't progress in a rapid way. Beyond those treatments, there are some times where we would consider bleaching, which is to say removing all of the natural skin color and to make the skin all white. Now, it's a very drastic treatment, and it is something that is potentially permanent, although for many of these people, somewhat ironically, they then have to worry about their natural skin coming back and then having to bleach it again. But it is an option that is suitable and often preferable for people who have very extensive vitiligo that is very disfiguring, who might, because of their features, look acceptable, in fact, more acceptable if all of their skin was white. Now, I think most people know that Michael Jackson had vitiligo, and indeed he had. And I think one of the tragedies of Michael Jackson is that he never outwardly discussed his condition. But I think it does explain why maybe he did wear that glove on one hand, because that's where vitiligo can occur. But also I think it does explain why he may have had plastic surgery, because if we bleach all of the skin colour, and if your features are caucasoid, it doesn't look too odd. But if you have African features with a broad-based nose and your skin goes all white, it does look a bit incongruous, and therefore it may explain why he had surgery, for example, on his nose. So to bleach the skin can be very effective in some people, but not for everybody. And that process takes over a year or so of using a bleaching cream every day, and that does need to be done through a dermatologist. Surgical treatments for vitiligo emerging, but it is important to note that they only have a limited place. And the surgical technique that is preferred is one that is now just being offered in certain centres, including ours in Australia. However, we are still just developing our expertise in this area. Surgery is limited to what we would call stable vitiligo. So stable vitiligo occurs after we have tried, mainly with the phototherapy, to bring back as much of the skin colour as we can. At some point in time, when we are continuing with the light therapy, we have a look at the photographs and there is no further improvement. So in other words, a person's skin color might have returned, let's say 80% in some areas, but not completely. And we continue with the treatment and then after three months, look at the photos and it's the same. 
In that situation, we stop the treatment. We continue to observe in case the light is just holding the immune system at bay. If the white patches start to develop again, we, of course, restart the treatment. But at a certain point in time, we will stop the treatment and then those remaining white patches stay exactly the same, regardless of whether we use any treatment or not. So those remaining areas are essentially like a scar, and that's what we call stable vitiligo. And we assume in that situation that the immune system at that point has stopped attacking the skin. Now, for stable vitiligo, there is the option of considering what we would call epidermal grafting. So what we do in this situation is that we remove just with a very thin sliver of skin from usually the hip or the buttock area, and we literally put that into a Petri dish and add to that a chemical called trypsin. And what trypsin does is it separates out the individual skin cells, including the pigment cells. And from that, we make up a liquid suspension of a person's own skin cells. On the area of vitiligo, we then use a laser to remove the very top layer of the skin. And onto that area of skin, we put that skin cell suspension. So what happens there is that the person's own skin cells settle into that area of vitiligo and recolor the skin with their own melanocytes or pigment cells. Now, the advantage of that treatment is that because we're only taking a very thin slither of skin from the donor site on the hip, and because we're only removing the very top layer of the skin from the white stable vitiligo, it really should and does heal with no scarring. The other advantage is because we're using a person's own skin cells, the color match should be the same and the skin where the transplanted cells have gone into should tan as per usual. The problem is that it's quite a technical thing to achieve. And although we hope in cases of stable vitiligo to be able to bring back at least 70% of the, the skin color, that's not always achievable. And the treatment is not covered under Medicare. So there is some cost involved. But for people with limited areas of stable vitiligo, that is something now that we can consider as a treatment option. We have a number of colleagues, or I have some colleagues overseas who have particular expertise in this area. And as I said, it is a new and evolving area. The last thing I wanted to mention in terms of treatment is camouflage. So camouflage should be offered to everybody with vitiligo if they choose to cover it. And the interesting thing is that not everybody does choose to do so. But if people do, then there is quite a large range and an increasing range of products designed to color match um, to enable people to camouflage their vitiligo and to do that on a regular basis. So every product does vary in terms of how good a color match it can achieve, how easy it is to apply, how long lasting it is um, on the skin, and also whether or not it looks like makeup. So for men in particular, it's not acceptable to have something that clearly a makeup, whereas for women that can be an option on the face. So that's the range of currently available treatments. And I think it's important just to note that vitiligo is treatable, but it does vary from person to person and indeed from area to area on their own skin as to how likely or unlikely it is that we'll be able to bring the colour back. Mm, well, thank you for such a succinct and comprehensive list of treatments. Really fascinating in terms of the UVB and even the newer surgical methods of treating vitiligo. I'd be certainly interested to watch the progression of that as time goes on. 
Dr. Ma, I'd really love to hear about your favorite case study or career moment. So perhaps a time when you got really great results for your patient and it reminded you of why you do what you do. And I know many professionals have something that will stand out in their mind as really something that just keeps you going throughout, um, you know, some of those tough long days. Well, that's right. And I think the great thing about my job is that most conditions, we can offer some benefit to patients. And as you're suggesting, it is very gratifying to see people really appreciating it when they do see an improvement in their skin condition. And this is particularly the case for a condition where they may have seen a number of other practitioners who were not able to give them the necessary treatment or advice. And it can therefore be quite frustrating for a lot of patients with vitiligo who might give up if they've not been given, I think, the optimal care. But in terms of specific patients and incidences, one gentleman stands out in my mind very clearly. And this was a man of African descent, a young man who came to see me for limited vitiligo that was having a big impact on his life. He had one stable patch of vitiligo on his leg, but the other area of involvement was his genitals. And that area, unfortunately, is, is an area that is not uncommonly affected. And as I've already mentioned, the chance of repigmentation or the prognosis is poor. So interestingly, he had acquired before seeing me a traditional tattoo on the area of vitiligo on his leg. Because of his very dark skin color, this actually worked well. And he came to me saying he had approached tattoo artists and weren't prepared, understandably, to tattoo on his genitals, but he really wanted some treatment. And unfortunately, I really wasn't able to offer him any conventional treatment, knowing that it really wouldn't work. But we then did try to find a cosmetic tattooist. Now, the so-called cosmetic tattooing, which is the same as micropigmentation, is what is used for so-called semi-permanent makeup. People can have this tattooing for their eyebrows, for example. And the problem with vitiligo is it's very difficult to get a color match. And when the skin tans, of course, it will be different. And the color changes over time. It's not permanent. And as it's starting to fade, the color itself uh, can alter. So we don't actually recommend it as a standard treatment for vitiligo. This gentleman was very desperate and I did point him towards somebody but I didn't, then didn't see him for some years. He came back to see me several years later and told me that in fact he did see somebody and had this micropigmentation performed. It was successful enough that he had returned having partly completed his studies in Australia to Africa and he had a, an arranged marriage and things went so well. He fathered a, a little girl, but this, the problem was now that his wife and child were back in Africa, but he was unable to return there. And the reason for that was because in the intervening time, he'd come back to finish his studies in Australia and that micropigmentation had started to alter in color. And it then left him with quite a disfiguring discoloration, which was a, in fact a, a bluish discoloration. And he told me that when he got married, it was an arranged marriage. And we know already that 
vitiligo can have the impact in certain societies overseas where not only if you have vitiligo will you have no prospect of getting married but your siblings as well won't as well and you can imagine the huge burden that that then places on person and the stress knowing that you've impacted your siblings lives as well as your own or what is essentially a discoloration of the skin This gentleman told me that his arranged marriage was on the basis of him being perfectly well and fit and that one of his uncles had vouched for his fitness. And at the time, the micropigmentation had worked so well that his wife hadn't noticed it. And as I said, he fathered a child. But now with it becoming noticeable again, he was genuinely very concerned that if he went back to see his wife and child, that she would have grounds to annul their marriage. And this was a concern enough that he was not willing to go back to see them. So this was a significant impact that went beyond just his psychological mindset. It really was separating him from his family. And so I tried to find a solution and I knew that we hadn't yet developed our grafting technique to the point where I could offer him a good outcome. And so I sought out some colleagues overseas and the experts with grafting who have the most experience and I think who get best results anywhere in the world are based in India. And I reached out to one of my colleagues who I knew was a world expert here, discussed my patient's case and in fact, arranged for him to travel there to have this treatment, which was a great success. And I then later heard that he was able then to go back to Africa and meet up with his family. And while the result wasn't perfect, in fact, it was good enough to give him sufficient confidence then to also have a discussion with his wife, who is now more accepting. But it really was a tremendous outcome in that it was the one barrier that really kept him from progressing in his life. And once overcome, it did change his life completely and for the better. So I think that it illustrates a number of points that I've already made about the impact that this condition can have. The fact that there are real challenges to treatment, but of course, my role is to try to find a solution. And sometimes the solution is not always at our doorstep, but I helped to facilitate his treatment and I was very pleased with the outcome. What a tremendous story of not just a successful treatment, but it also just highlights Um, how different cultures will accept or not accept certain skin conditions. So um, thank you so much for sharing that insight. Absolutely fascinating. And what about a time perhaps when, and you probably have touched on this a little bit in terms of treatments and that some treatments won't be successful and some will depending on the individual, when you couldn't achieve what you wanted for the patient and what do you think happened and would there be anything differently now in terms of perhaps bringing in any new developments in the treatment of vitiligo that maybe looking back on your career that maybe for that particular patient a new development or a new innovative research that may not even be available yet could perhaps assist with a particular case study. So it is the case that we do regularly see people with disfiguring vitiligo that we will not be able to bring their colour back, and that's particularly on the hands. There are new treatments on the horizon and clinical trials to do with drugs that are very targeted 
in terms of dampening down that very small part of the immune system that is overactive in vitiligo. And we're seeing this already in other skin conditions such as psoriasis. Now, the advantage of uh, targeted immune-based therapy is that it should be more effective, but also safer, as opposed to using a treatment that might dampen a broader part of the immune system. And so clinical trials have begun already with these so-called JAK inhibitors, J-A-K, which refers to a chemical called Janus kinase. And this chemical is a key chemical inside certain cells, including skin cells. And when you think about how the immune system works, it is very much like if you have ants in your kitchen and the ants put down a little chemical trail to try to recruit their colleagues to come into that or to find that uh, source of uh, sugar. Mm. And the immune system is the same. And so there's little chemicals that secreted by the cells that recruit in those individual white blood cells to, in this case, do the damage on the skin. So what these targeted therapies do, they affect the secretion of these little chemical signals and stop the immune, those immune cells coming into the skin. So they hold a lot of promise. However, the big problem with vitiligo is that unlike conditions like eczema and psoriasis, where in those conditions, when you stop the immune system coming into the skin, people's skin will return and recover completely to normal. Even with very extensive and severe psoriasis, that condition never causes any permanent scarring of the skin. With vitiligo, stopping the immune system coming to the skin is only half the battle. We then have to bring the colour back, and that's where we struggle, and I think we will continue to, even after the further development of these newer drugs, we will still continue to have a difficulty in bringing the colour back in areas such as the hands. So... You asked about cases or times where I felt that treatment really was not able to be delivered to the satisfaction of myself or my patients and would I do anything differently? So I think one thing that I would do differently is because of more knowledge about camouflage products is to give patients more information about what are some really quite effective ways of covering their skin. But I also feel that I would like to be able to offer them more support in terms of getting involved with support groups and online resources. And this is something that we are developing through the Vitiligo Association. So I think that it's very important that as a dermatologist, I recognize that my part of the management is limited, but should not be just focused on trying to treat the medical condition. I need to recognize that there are other ways of supporting my patients and therefore referring to colleagues who have expertise in psychological counseling referring to my colleagues who have expertise in makeup camouflage and to the support groups which are organized by people themselves who have vitiligo. These are very important aspects of helping and supporting my patients. It goes beyond the treatments that I can offer as a doctor. Fantastic. And the Vitiligo Association of Australia was founded in 2010. You currently sit on the board as the president. So what exactly does the 
VAA do? Is it for support, treatments? Are you able to expand a little bit about the services that it provides? So the VAA is the only in the main association in Australia that is dedicated towards supporting those with vitiligo and supporting where we can endeavours, particularly in research, that might help to develop further and better treatments in the future. We are very keen to develop the support groups that I mentioned and other resources, one of our big projects at the moment is a camouflage project to inform people of the many products out there and to road test each of them so that people can, through an online resource, see which products may be more or less suitable for them and for what reasons. So the VAA is a relatively new association and there's a lot that we need to do. And we're now just, I think, hitting our stride in terms of developing these very important resources. So I mentioned support groups. We don't yet have active support groups throughout Australia, but that now is one of our focuses. And we are starting to tap into the many talents that our members have in being able to contribute where they can help to encourage, inspire and support others. And I'll just give you one example. So one of our members who recently joined is a young lady. Her name is Tia. And she has vitiligo, which is on her face. And it's quite visible. She has a skin that is dark enough so that it is quite clear that she has this condition. But she has chosen very deliberately not to cover it. And she feels that this is very much a part of her identity. But further than that, she is very keen to create a presence online through her Instagram account and now we're hoping through the VAA to be a role model for particularly young people who might feel that they're alone, they know nobody else with this condition, they do lack that self-confidence. And seeing this attractive young lady who is clearly confident enough to not let this condition affect her, her life and her presence, I think is going to be a wonderful thing. And many of your listeners will perhaps know of Winnie Harlow, who is a model. She's Canadian of African descent, who was on one of the reality TV shows of America's Next Model. And she has now got a contract with a number of very high profile companies. And she has made a tremendous difference to people within LIGA all around the world being now able to see somebody with their condition who, again, is, is out and proud and can then enable others to have a bit of a conversation about this condition, to demystify it and to, over time, make it more acceptable. And it is interesting. I've got a couple of patients. One lady, she tells me that while she covers up with makeup in Australia, when she goes back to a Greek island where her family is, that there are others with vitiligo there. I'm not sure if it is more prevalent or not. But they walk around and people don't look twice. So she doesn't have to wear a makeup there. And I have another gentleman from the Caribbean island who has had the same experience. And how great would it be if we got to that point in our society where people didn't feel that they need to cover and people really wouldn't look twice? 
So the interesting thing that's happening now is that we have people like Tia, like Winnie, who can help to inspire and represent those who may like to accept this as a part of themselves and send the signal to those with vitiligo that if you choose to, then you can see me as an example, somebody who can get on with our life while not having to cover up, while also recognising that that is not the journey or not the choice that many others with vitiligo, for whatever reason, may want to take. And for example, another one of our new members, Lauren Jimison, has recently started an online blog called The Jimmy Journal. And again, she's setting herself up as a very positive role model. But here, uh, although she does openly discuss her vitiligo because of her work as a professional performer, she feels that she does need to cover up with makeup. And for still for most people, I think that is the case. And we shouldn't and don't as a society, the VAA association that is, feel that there's any one particular approach or, or pathway that people should be taking with their vitiligo because it will vary depending on that stage of life. And some people may feel that people should accept them for as they are but we should not at the same time fail to recognize that there are many people who do suffer from vitiligo and therefore covering it is the appropriate approach for them. So we're trying to create a community that embraces people with vitiligo who have different background stories, who have different responses to their condition. And the great thing about a support group is that people can come along and they just don't have to explain as they might otherwise constantly what their condition is and why it is that they have it. They can be themselves and amongst others who have a similar story uh, and experience. So it's been very positive for me to see these wonderful people, to meet them and to, to be amongst them. And we're wanting to replicate that throughout Australia. So that's a big part of what we do with the VAA. We are trying to organise events to coincide with World Vitiligo Day that occurs on the 25th of June every year. We have, of course, dermatologists involved with our association, so we provide the ability to liaise with the professionals there. We're able to provide some accurate advice about treatment, and I also mentioned this uh, the camouflage project. So the camouflage project is our main area of, well, it's different from the normal medical research, but nonetheless, it is a project that's involved with, with some colleagues and it will be a world first, we believe. Uh, we don't currently have anywhere for people to get all the information about the many products currently available that may help their skin. And we're now living in an environment where the world is smaller because of the internet and with social media. And I feel that we can take advantage of that in that people can find support more readily online. Um, it needs to be developed even further. And we're hoping to also develop supports for children in particular and develop some, whether online or in-person community support groups. And there are resources, for example, there are some books written for children, storylines based on children who have vitiligo and making people aware of these sorts of resources. 
So Dr. Mark, just hearing those stories is so inspiring and it sounds like there's lots of support and lots of activity happening around the vitiligo community, which I think um, warrants podcast episode just on itself. I would love to highlight some of these stories and perhaps you know, talk more about the support that is at hand and some stories of people that are experiencing vitiligo, but also the outcomes and, and the developments that the VAA is coming across as well in Australia. So I think that would be a wonderful se- a segment part two for our listeners. <laughs> yes. Look, I, I, so no, I, I just say, look, I, I do appreciate your support as well. And I think that if any of your listeners either have vitiligo, know people who have vitiligo, we're very keen to engage more people in the society. And there's many levels at which they can help and contribute, even just turning up to events. So I see that the VAA is listed in your directory on your website. And, and again, I, I, I thank you for that support. Mm, it's, a, it's our pleasure. We're here to highlight the available support and resources for people that are living with skin conditions of all types. Now, in terms of finding out more about what you do, what the VAA does, where can people find out more about the projects, relevant websites, links, social media handles, etc.? The VAA has its website, which is vitiligo.org.au. And so there is information there about what we do and the projects. We are in the process, as I mentioned, of developing the resources further. And so we would love to hear from people, particularly if they would like to get involved in support groups or specific activities, because we do need more people to help out and to help develop these. But um, our uh, email and Facebook details are on the website. And uh, yes, so so people should feel free to, to reach out. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Ma, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with us today. It has been a real pleasure to have you and thank you for sharing so much knowledge, in-depth stories and being just so generous with your time. Thank you very much, Mani. Thank you again. Wow, what an interview. Dr. Ma was so incredibly generous with his time and his stories. I could have listened to him all day. And I think it calls for a second episode. Let us know if you'd like to hear more from Dr. Ma by contacting us at the Derm Health Co. website, www.dermhealth.co. Dr. Ma shared with us some really intriguing stories about his patients' lives. And the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, New treatments for vitiligo, including grafting, are so fascinating. Can you just imagine them growing these melanocyte cells in a petri dish and then putting them onto someone's skin to form color in that white macule? So incredibly amazing. Number two, just as we are all so different, the way in which we react to treatments is also so individual. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the other. And this is true in not just vitiligo, but so many things. It's really important to have an individualized treatment program. 
which is what we're trying to do at Derm Health Co. Number three, there is growing support and awareness for vitiligo. And the rise in social media has seen more advocates raising awareness for this skin condition. There's some really great accounts on social media that advocating vitiligo, and I think you'd love to connect with them. So jump into the show notes, have a look and give them all the follow. Thank you for sharing your earbuds with us for another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. It's always a pleasure and I'd love to know what you think of this podcast episode. So be sure to connect through social media or online. Speak again next week. If you know someone experiencing a skin conditional concern and you're enjoying these episodes, then be sure to share the podcast with them. It may help them on their skin health journey more than you realize.